Welcome back to Mission 150. Last week, we discussed the way that many American Adventists preferred to interpret New Testament statements about preaching to every nation as meaning to preaching people from those nations who had emigrated to the United States, so that they ended up limiting the Great Commission and the prophetic vision of Revelation 14.6 to just one country. James White was in a minority in believing that Seventh-day Adventists were commanded to take the gospel message and prophetic truth into the whole world. So James White was a force, but he wasn't the only one that helped to shift this. How did this change? So the most important thing that happens is that in 1869, American Adventists discover that they are not alone. The reason is that Michael Tchaikovsky, who we talked about in last week's episode, who wants to go as a missionary to Europe, has some question marks about his judgment and his character, isn't sent by the Seventh-day Adventists, but is sent by the Advent Christians, a rival denomination. He takes their money and then teaches Seventh-day Adventist truths. He goes, he does go to Europe and he travels across Europe and he's successful in building up communities of Seventh-day Sabbath keepers. In Switzerland. In, in, and in other parts of Europe, though there it's usually only a handful. What he manages to do in Switzerland is to build up a not insignificant body of believers. We're only talking a couple of hundred, but there are six different small congregations, with the chief one being at a place called Tramala, uh, which is in Switzerland. And Tchaikovsky himself, part of the reason he has bad judgment in finance um, is that what he really wants to do is to plant churches. He's an evangelist at, at heart. He's not a manager or an op he doesn't do operations. He's terrible at them, in fact. And so having built up this group of Seventh-day Sabbath-keeping believers in the Second Advent in Switzerland, he doesn't want to stay there. So he heads off to Romania and Hungary and attempts, you know, well, nobody's heard about it there. I'll start up other groups there. Uh, and eventually, he, a few years later, he dies there. He, so he never comes back to Switzerland. Um, but he's left two elders of the Tramelan church, a man called Jakob Erzberger, and who's a German-speaking Swiss and a French-speaking Swiss, a man called Albert Voyumier. And at one point, they start going through some papers, some documents that Tchaikovsky had left behind when he headed off to Romania. They start going through these documents, and goodness me, what do they find? They find this magazine or journal called the Review and Herald. And to their astonishment, they discover that there's actually a whole denomination, a whole church, believing what they believe in America who are called Seventh-day Adventists. He hadn't told them. He hadn't told them. This is, you know, I, last week we talked about him being economical with the truth and being questionable judgment. He builds up Seventh-day Adventists in Europe and never tells them that there are Seventh-day Adventists in North America. Indeed, that's where he's got these truths from. They think it's all just him. So these elders discover this thing and obviously they write to the review and say... Absolutely. So Erzberger and Vujumier write to the editor of the review and basically say, here we are. Um, and it's, I think it's hard to know who was more astonished, the Swiss Adventists to discover that there are Americans or the American Adventists who to discover suddenly that they've got Swiss fellow believers when that, when that comes as a shock. Um, John N. Andrews, who's the editor of the review, the church paper that we talked about last episode and that we'll talk about again, I'm sure, in other episodes, which, which binds the movement together, Andrews is the editor of the review and he publishes this letter and he actually says, we cannot take any credit to ourselves for the raising up of this company of commandment keepers. 
which is true. They've done nothing to contribute to it. Um, and then he writes about Tchaikovsky. He says, we suppose that he had given up the observance of the seventh day. It was therefore much to our surprise that we learned that he was not only adhering to the Sabbath himself, but that he had raised up a body of Sabbath keepers in Switzerland. So there's mutual astonishment. Americans who think they're the only ones in the world and the Swiss who think they're the only ones in the world. So the Swiss were in need both spiritually and materially. They needed additional doctrinal instruction because Tchaikovsky had only covered certain things. He hasn't covered the full package of Seventh-day Adventist doctrines. He's covered the Sabbath. Very economical with the truth. Very economical with the truth. Um, but the Swiss believers also needed money because their church building in Tramelan, which they owned, had been mortgaged to the hilt by Tchaikovsky, the man who was terrible at managing money. Um, and so the, their, own, their church building in Tramelan was about to pass into the hands of worldly men, as Andrews notes when he writes this, this article. So back to the bank, we're possessed by the bank or whoever. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So the Swiss need to be told more about what it means to be a Seventh-day Adventist, but they also have financial needs. And so the Swiss are appealing for help, but they do more than that. They send Jakob Erzberger, one of these two elders, to the United States. Um, he went to Battle Creek where James and Ellen White welcomed him into their home. Um, the young John Harvey Kellogg tutored him in English. Um, and then he went and stayed with Jay and Andrews who studied the Bible with him. And he actually went with Andrews to the New York conference camp meeting where he was ordained before he returns home in 1870. So you might think this has got to be the turning point because not only have they discovered we've got these other people to whom, for whom surely we have to feel some responsibility, but it's not just a notional thing. Here's one of them actually appearing in Battle Creek and going to the New York conference camp meeting. That must have been so key um, from the Swiss to send somebody in flesh and blood, not just letters. I think it's an important first moment, but here's the thing, it doesn't change anything immediately. It doesn't change anything. Well, as far as they were concerned, they ordained him. He's going back. He's, he's our guy there. Right. This isn't our problem. This is great. We're glad that there are Seventh-day Adventists in Europe, but it's not our problem. It's the whole American exceptionalism or American parochialism coming up again. Now, James White, in, in June of 1869, tries to, you know, use this as a springboard. And he says... He appeals for funds. He says, means are wanted. Other lands are reaching out their hands to us for help. Um, so you, you might think at this moment, American Adventists are going to say, right, we need to do something. But in June 1870, White reports, our people very slowly respond to the call for means to help the cause in Switzerland. We have been disappointed. And he identifies three reasons. He says, first, few Adventists are wealthy, and many of those who wanted to help had no money to spare. But on the other hand, he says, most of those brethren who have ready cash have either never seen their duty to help the cause in all its departments. And by all its departments, he means geographically. Mm -hmm. So the people who have money have never seen it as their duty to help the cause everywhere, or they have lost the spirit of sacrifice. And I think uh, most important is that American Adventists just didn't agree they had the responsibility to help. Even though, as White says, other lands are reaching out their hands, American Adventists are saying, no, we don't have a responsibility. Because James White writes, in the minds of many, there is doubt. 
those who are ready to hand out money to circulate publications in our own country and to help the cause in our own land to risk their money to help the cause in Europe does not look so clear. So you've got these people who are ready to hand out money to circulate publications in our own country and to help the cause in our own land, but to risk their money to help the cause in Europe does not look so clear. But that's always been the tension. In our last annual council here at the, at the executive committee of the General Conference, there was a lot of emphasis on the responsibility of other nations to start sending missionaries and to start sending resources elsewhere. Absolutely. Which has been typically an American thing. Yes. So You make a really good point. Parochialism is not restricted to the past, which is one reason we're talking about it now. Because this isn't just an historical problem, Sam. And I want to make that point for our listeners and viewers. This, we're not only talking about an historical yeah, problem. We see this everywhere. We see this in, in countries, not least in uh, America. Look, the, the world is already, we've already spread it. We now need to use our resources here. Exactly. And you have countries in Africa that are saying this. Yes. And you have countries in Asia that never woke up to the reality that they should be sending missionaries and resources elsewhere. They've never elsewhere. even thought of it. You're they right. haven't even thought of it because that's what Americans do. They send missionaries right. to other places. And as you say, in Africa, there are countries that are saying, yes, 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 it's good to have more missionaries being sent out, but we've got our own problems here. Don't ask us to, to commit resources or sending missionaries to other parts of the world, even though, you know, there's two things that I would say to that, Sam. One is that the spirit of sacrifice is important. And even though you may have needs in your own country, and this applies to America, but also applies to these countries in Africa, um, if you're only looking to your own backyard, it's going to do something to you spiritually. And Ellen White, of course, famously says that the prosperity of the truth in the homelands rests on the reflex influence of evangelistic work in countries afar off. So if you are turning your back on the rest of the world, you're not going to prosper spiritually because, of course, you're focusing inward. And what is Christianity about? Christianity is about looking outward. It always has been. Christianity is about looking outwards and looking beyond yourself. Uh, but the second thing is, Today, in today's world, you have diasporas of all kinds of ethnicities and nationalities. So there are African countries today um, that can make a difference in Europe, for example, because there are diasporas of their people, of their ethnic groups, living in Britain, in France, in Germany, in Scandinavia, yeah. increasingly even in Eastern Europe. Um, and if they send missionaries, they can reach those people in a way that people from Europe originally can't necessarily do. So for two reasons, um, the appeal to be involved in mission work is still a very real one, uh, whether it's to people in America or Africa or indeed Asia, for, for some of whom you said it's never even occurred to them that they should be involved in this. this. I think this is going to be one of the main themes for the next few years in terms of mission. It's the, it's the very clear <coughs> reality that you will be blessed to the extent that you fulfill the mission beyond your borders. And this is beyond your borders of your local church, your, your region, your union, your division, your, your country. You know, the more you can do to fulfill the mission, the more resources God will give you. That seems to be the history constantly. Yes. That the more inward looking, even in Jerusalem, in the early church, this is not right. a new problem. It's, it's, it's been there throughout. The tension has been there throughout. But we know the early church very, you know, fairly rapidly was able to overcome this by looking beyond, partly because persecution drives them out. Mm -hmm. um, and so they're... But not without struggle. 
No, not without, you're absolutely right. And of course, there's partly the theological struggle, mm -hmm. which the council at Jerusalem is all about. Is it necessary for Gentiles to keep the law, mm -hmm. uh, which would have greatly restricted the, the reach of the message and under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, church leaders say, no, it's not necessary for Gentiles to keep the law. It's still necessary for Jews who've been born into this to, to keep the law, but Gentiles just do this and this. Mm -hmm. um, so, but it, it, it takes a struggle, as you, as you say, and we don't really know how long it is between Christ's uh, resurrection and the day of Pentecost on the one hand, and the events described in Acts where it describes Paul and Bar Saul as he then was and Barnabas being commissioned as missionaries to the Gentiles. But some biblical scholars would suggest that it's 15 or 20 years, which means we're talking about the same length of time. Similar time frame between. For Seventh-day Adventists. Yeah. From the first time that they start saying, wait, is this something we should be doing in 1859 to actually doing something about it in 1874? Is there a precursor to the international mission within America itself. Did we send missionaries, because America is pretty big, you know, you've got a, a, a broad land here. Uh, was there a precursor before we sent missionaries abroad, did we send them locally? Absolutely. And in fact, within a, a year of the founding of the General Conference session, they send Luff, John Loughborough to work in the New England Conference as they call him a missionary, hmm. to do mission work because even though the church started in New England, it's actually quite weak in New England. Where it's grown is in upstate New York and Michigan and the Midwest okay. of the United States. But they felt New England could, so had a potential to be they a They felt a, a New a England had potential. They had Adventists there, so they send Loughborough. And of course, at this stage, the church consists of six conferences. Okay. Um, those six conferences are the equivalent, therefore, of unions or even divisions today. And one reason that they found a Seventh-day Adventist denomination is because they recognize if you only have six conferences, in effect, you've got six Seventh-day Adventist churches. And the only incentive for any of them is to look within their own boundaries. Wh who's got the incentive to look beyond the boundaries of my state conference? So the structure had to serve the mission to other areas from the outset. From the outset, from the outset they found an organized church that is overarching because they want mission to succeed. It's just that in, in initially, they only think of mission as being within the United States. But the, the philosophy is the same, the principle is the same. The principle is the same. And so if actually, if you look at our history, from the very beginning, we've taken resources from where the church is strong and applied them to where the church is weak in order that the church can grow there. And this applies from a local conference, somewhere in a region. If there is a town that there is no Adventist presence, the tithe and offerings from the other churches in that region Absolutely. will sponsor a new missionary to that new village, that new town. Exactly. Usually a union is a country or, or part of a country. The same yes. thing applies and then the division and the general conference has special projects to reach areas of the world where there isn't enough strength in right. that area. Where there's not enough strength to evangelize their own territory. The same principle that applies to, to 162,000 congregations applied at the time to fewer, many, m much around, fewer congregations. Yeah, to around 3,000 believers in total as opposed to 21 million. That's, not, that's, that's pretty rare to have the same principle applying at scale in that, same, in that way. It is, and it's part of our history. And that's why it concerns me when I do hear people from various parts of the world saying, the rest of the world is fine now. We don't have an obligation 
And, and I'll be honest, especially that you, I hear that from people in North America, because North America is very materially blessed. Um, this farm, partly just because of the, uh, the GDP of the United States, the tithe and offerings that come out of North America are far more than anywhere else in the rest of the world and far more per capita. So if American Adventists aren't willing to invest their resources to help the church grow in the rest of the world, it's not going to happen or it's not going to happen as quickly. Now, fortunately, we've got South America, which never used to be interested in the rest of the world, is now stepping up and saying, yes, uh, the I will go, which is literally the Congress that happens each year for young people, thousands of Adventist young people saying, I will go more than we actually have opportunities to use. We have less opportunity than we have people. There are more people willing to go than we have places to send That's them. right. And mission offerings from South America, from Europe and Australia are buoyant. But, you know, if, if, we, if we do retreat into that parochialism again that says, I only need to worry about reaching the church in my country because that's where God has really pointed me. Um, we're, A, we're making the same mistake as our pioneers made, and B, we're ignoring the good decision that our pioneers made, because throughout our history, we've taken resources from where the church is strong, not stripping it of resources, no, but taking resources and applying it to where the church is weak, and that's why the church has grown. That's why the church has grown in Africa and Latin America. You know, even in the 1970s, the church in South America was relatively small. Yes. It took decades of investment of resources, both money and missionaries, uh, chiefly from North America, as it happens, to make the church grow in Latin America. In, U in Africa, the missionaries and the resources often came from Europe. In the South Pacific and parts of Asia, the resources have often come from Australia. But the principle has been the same, and we don't want to get away from that because that's the reason we have the church that we have today. Um, but so I was mentioning, to go back to the 1860s, Loughborough gets sent to work as a missionary laborer in New England. Um, and then in 1868, the church actually sends what it calls its first missionaries, which is again, John Loughborough and a man called Daniel Bordeaux, who actually is Canadian. So it's not quite right to say that there are the Adventists are only in the United States because there's a few groups of Seventh-day Adventists just on the Quebec side of the border with Vermont. Okay. So, but it's, it's, a, it's, so in, it, it's still North America. Sure. It's only North America and it's a relatively small group and just in that regionally confined area, but still. Um, so there are a few Canadian Adventists from the beginning. Um, but they send Loughborough and Daniel Bodeau to California and they say, we are sending missionaries. <laughs> now, of course, to go to California in 1868 is a big deal. The United States is a huge country and there's no cross transcontinental railway yet. They have to go down to Panama, cross the, the Isthmus of Panama and then take another ship up to get to San Francisco. Wow. But the other thing is if you read Loughborough's letters home, it's almost as though he is a missionary because he keeps, he keeps marveling at how different things are. And he even says repeatedly, this is how different things are here to back in the States. <laughs> so he's considering California to be an entirely different world yes. and the States to be this, where he's from. Where he's from, exactly. So of course, <laughs> the, California is part of the United States, 
but he's talking about it as though it's another country, and it's it's already a different culture. So it's, it's isn't this like the time of the wild, the wild west? The wild west. It is. The, right, California right. is the wild west, and and so, but you know what I think? I think God moves our church leaders in 1868 to send missionaries to California, and they're even reluctant to do that. Mm. There's a degree of reluctance to do that. Is it because they don't have enough money to maintain everything? What, what is it exactly? They're concerned about money. There's no question that okay. they're concerned. So they're cautious. About money. Yes. Um, James White tends to be of the point of view, if we move forwards in faith, God will supply the means. Well, he bought the printing press uh, uh, in, in 48, right? So absolutely. faith upon faith, and he's like, ah, let's he, go. And then they buy the steam press in the early 1850s, and they get the money for that, and everything grows from that. So yeah, he's, he, there's a track record. But in 1868, they do send Loughborough and Bordeaux as missionaries to California. And I think God is helping them to dip their toe in the water, because it is a different culture. It's a long way to go. And so it's getting them used to the idea of mission in Europe without actually doing it. So even before they hear from the Swiss Adventists, it's 1868, they have actually sent their first missionaries. But when it comes to sending missionaries outside of the United States, it's still too much. And and the reason I think, again, is, is coming back to that American exceptionalism, that American parochialism that had been there since the days of the Millerites and, and, and even before. It's, it's a it's standard. it's a young thing. country too, you it's, know. It, it's, it doesn't have a hundred years. There is that, a, a big emphasis on... It's a good point. ...who we are and, and we are the United States and we're a new country. And, yes. You know, I'm sure there is a, a lot of that and up until that point. So, okay, we're coming up to the moment where they decided. Some things must have sped up that, that process of changing their minds. Well, so... It's interesting, if you go to December 1871, there's a general conference session, and they actually said that they... That's in winter. Why would they do a conference session in winter? In Michigan. In Michigan, yeah. I mean, those of us from more tem- temperate climates can only wonder. <laughs> I guess they were hard- our forebears were hardy, Sam. Yeah, I, it, I suppose it is. But if you have the choice to do it once per year, you know, pick June. <laughs> well, or pick the autumn or the... Of course... Yeah. They're farmers, so they don't want to do it at a time when they have to be working in the fields. That's, That's probably winter. There's nothing that they can do. Uh, right. Plen- so plenty you, may of well, time. you may as well have an administrative meeting. <laughs> um, huh. But they actually, the, the minutes actually record that the session voted to send out Brother Madison as a missionary to the Danes and Norwegians. So you might say, right, great, they've done it. But then I've left out part of the action. Mm. Because the action also then says, in Wisconsin. Okay, so again, the same theme. We're going to reach the Danes Yes. in Wisconsin. So the immigrants that came, let's help translate and publish content for them. We're reaching the Danes and Norwegians who have bothered to come to the United States. Um, And I think Ellen White um, reacts against this. Because in December 1871, she pens a testimony on missionary work which can be read in Testimonies, Volume 3, and she writes reproachfully. She says, There has been but little of the missionary spirit among Sabbath-keeping Adventists. And she urges, Young men should be qualifying themselves by becoming familiar with other languages, that God may use them as mediums to communicate His saving truth to those of other nations. And Ellen, if you just leave it there, her readers might have thought that all she was saying is, Learn languages in order to translate books and journals. Because the Adventists actually already have a journal uh, planned 
in Danish. And it's going to be edited by John Mattison, the man we talked about last episode and who has now just been sent as a missionary to the Danes and Norwegians of Wisconsin. Um, so they, are, they do have this journal and Danish, Swedish, Norwegian Adventists are sending papers and books in their own languages back to their family members on the other side of the ocean. And so for some Adventists, this is all you need to do to honor Revelation 10:11 and Revelation 14, 6. Translate, send it as literature. Right. I don't need to go myself and none of my friends or colleagues. We just send the literature and God will do the work. It's, I, it's, it's, it's saying, you know, it's, it's really a kind of abdication of responsibility because it allows you to feel good about yourself. But you're basically saying, let God do the work, but God works through human instruments. I think we are seeing a, a resurgence of that spirit, David, today, because I see a lot of parallels between the difficulty of the church understanding how to send missionaries to the physical lands of the world. I see a similarity in how difficult it is for us to understand what we need to do to send missionaries to the digital lens mm, of the world. Interesting. And I think there is a lot of that washing hands kind of thing. Well, if we send things digitally to people and they can read it and they can find out the truth for themselves digitally, then it does. It, it, it means that I don't need to go or we don't need to send people. Right. I think that the instinct to use media instead of, of people has been there from the beginning. Right. And of course, you do need to use media, which back then meant the printing press. Um, and you do need to use media, but you've got to do more than use media. Yeah, it's it's the it will always involve people. Uh, media by itself will not. It'll, um, it'll will, only have a very limited fruit. Yeah. And I mean, it does have some because we know that eventually when Madison Spoiler alert, Madison does get sent as a missionary to Scandinavia in 1877. Eventually it happens. Um, he finds that there are already Sabbath keeping Adventists there, people who'd read the literature. But we're talking about handfuls of people. By the time he comes home from being a missionary, we can talk about him in another episode. By the time he comes home, we're talking about several hundred and three conferences having been founded. So that immediately summarizes the difference between sending the printed message and actually sending a person. You, you prepare the field, you connect with people, you, you, but at some point, a human being needs to be involved in that process. And I think this is also why evangelistic meetings are still important for the church, that you can have local, in fact, you, you have to have local church members visiting with neighbors and friends, uh, preparing the ground, but very often to impel people to make that commitment it needs to be done in that kind of setting of a public evangelistic campaign in order to help people make that final step. Yeah. Um, and so it's, 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 the, it's the same principle at work, really, that you can sow the seed, you can lay the groundwork, but actually to make it happen requires somebody to go and do the work. I, I don't think, I think there is a tension between the art form of the sermon and all other art forms. So some people say that the sermon cannot be, should not be the most important art form because all of them are important. Mm. But because all of them are important, there is a time where the sermon really matters because um, when all the other things come together, the sermon is perhaps the most powerful way of getting somebody from point A to point B, of, of drawing all things together. Right. Um, and I work with marketing all the time and you have... There is no marketing technique in the world nor agency that can bring 
the same transformation as a series of sermons can in someone's life. So obviously it's a supernatural thing that happens. Mm. All, we, all we can do is present the truth and the Holy Spirit does uh, his work, but it's, it's still an important element of, of meeting right. real people. Right. Oh, going back to 1871, so Ellen White, if she just left it at that to say young men should be qualifying themselves by be- becoming familiar with other languages, her readers might have thought she just means, oh, publish things in Danish, Swedish, German, mm-hmm. um, for immigrants here. And so she goes on to make it clear. She says, much can be done through the medium of the press, but still more can be accomplished if the influence of the labors of the living preacher goes with our publication. Missionaries are needed to go to other nations to preach the truth in a guarded, careful manner. So there it is. More can be done than with the press if the influence of the labors of the living preacher goes with our publications. That, or goes with media, as we'd say That today. balance she has between the media and the person. It's, it's great insights, that one. Yeah. <laughs> she has great insights. Yes. Okay, so we're coming close to, to, the, to the decision here. What happens? All right. So the 11th General Conference session gets held in March 1873. So still before you're getting into the, 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 the biggest part of the work on the farming calendar. It's mm-hmm. still probably very cold in Michigan in, in, March. Uh, in March, especially before global warming. But anyway, they have the general conference session and this time they've received a letter. They've received a letter from the believers in Switzerland. And it's written by Albert Vuillemier, the Isn't other that? elder. Yes, the other there elder. Were two. Is, there were two, Erzberger and Vuillemier. Erzberger already spent some time here. They right. knew him. He went back. Right. And Vuillemier is the other guy. Vuillemier writes the letter. It's also signed by two other men, Jules Etienne Dicci and Jules Henri Guenin. Now, all three of these men become Seventh-day Adventist leaders later. But these represent the six small congregations mm-hmm. that exist in Switzerland. Left by Tchaikovsky. Tcha- Tchaikovsky, but also built up a little by these 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 men these men yeah yeah and they they appeal they say we pray you to consider under the regard of god if it will not be necessary to send an american messenger to europe to direct the propagation of the truth now you note that word they're not appealing for money now mm. they're appealing for an american messenger what's a messenger it means a minister they're appealing for a missionary That's so before they'd appealed for funds and for moral support, now they're saying, you need to send a, an American minister to direct the propagation of the truth. That's, a, that's not a very European thing to say. Send, <laughs> us, send us an American to help us. Um, it's not, and even back then, I mean, today it would, it would be hard right. to imagine, but even back then, Europeans were quite reticent about American culture, seeing, seeing the United States as the Wild West, in effect. Exactly, so is this because they see the growth of here? Are they led by the Holy Spirit to make that request? It's hard to tell, I suppose. I think that I think they see the the troubles they're having themselves. They're seeing the financial difficulties that they have that Tchaikovsky left them in. But I think they're also seeing that they're just not making any progress. And by this time, they're receiving the review, some of them, and they will be reading and seeing that the church was growing in North America. They, they'll be aware of that. So I think that okay. that's part of it. Um, so how does that impact? The readers. Well, let me just quote the last part of it. The, the, they, the letter goes on from that and says, Oh, dear brethren, pray for us and for the work in Europe. This is the earnest prayer of your affectionate brethren in Jesus Christ who renew to you the assurance of their Christian love. Now, how do you say no to that? <laughs> 
you know, it would be like Paul saying no to the, the, the Macedonian man in the vision. Yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. here they are, you know, appealing to you in the, in the most heartfelt terms. But I do think um, that it's also probably a crystallization moment. And it, it also helps that James White um, gives the keynote address at this session. Now, James White, we'd already touched on, is one of the people who says, yes, the mission has to go into all the world. But in 1866 and 1867, James White has strokes. So he's kind of out. He right? is out. He's only a young man, but he has these terrible strokes and is in a very poor health. And so his voice gets removed. His was the loudest voice appealing. And of, of course, he still publishes those articles in 1869 and 1870 appealing for money. But his, there's limits to what he can do. By 1873, he's back. He gives the keynote address to the general conference session. And the interesting thing is he constantly refers to carrying the message to the world not talking about other nations. He talks about um, the entire work connected with the message which we have to give to the world. He says the third angel's message is a message we are bearing to the world. He quotes Revelation 14, 6 and says, this is a worldwide message. And then he says it again. So you can't be in any mistake now, any misunderstanding about this isn't something that just goes to other nations. This has to go to all the world. So I think it's partly the fact that James White is back and gives this incredibly potent address. But I suspect too, Sam, we're seeing a crystallization moment that you've had now 11 years since the church was founded. You've had people talking about sending foreign missionaries. You've had people offering to go as foreign missionaries. You've discovered there are foreign Adventists, much to your surprise. Um, you've, had them, you've had appeals made on their behalf before, but now they're appealing themselves. And also, I think you've had, it's the culmination. And I think we probably have to be a little realistic and say, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist in May of 1863, when there's only three to three and a half thousand of you, maybe, to say, we've got to go into all the world, it's not, it, it's too much. It's, it's ludicrous. It's, it's ludicrous. It's it, it, it can't happen. Of course, the crazy thing is, there are not that many more of them by 1873 and 1874, and they take it on. But I think it takes time for people to adjust mentally to that. So I think it's not just that they receive this incredibly heartfelt appeal from the Swiss brethren and sisters. Um, and it's not just that the, the Swiss are now actually saying, please send us um, an American minister. Don't just send us money, send us an American minister. And it's not just that you've got James White putting it in these very concrete terms and that you've had Ellen White putting it not that long ago in equally con I think it's all of those things come together and the events of the March 1873 GC session are what lead people to say okay right now we've got to do this David I imagine the Holy Spirit guiding every one of these events that cause their transformation and their slow you know process and by the time they make that decision I imagine the Holy Spirit being pretty happy that finally they got it okay, right. they got it you know like they they got it um, <laughs> But it takes a while for them to actually send. They don't know who exactly they're going to send. Right. It takes another 18 months. 18 months. But I think the, we, the, the corner has been turned in March of 1873. What takes the time is a matter of descending who to send. And they decide to send the church's most prominent scholar and a former general conference president, a man called John Andrews, who we quoted earlier. He was editor of the review when the Swiss wrote to them. Um, and we're going to talk about him more in episodes five and six of this podcast. We're going to focus on Jay and Andrews because the moment of his sending is so crucial. 
Um, but it also takes time for church leaders and Andrews himself to work out the practical details, which of course were very considerable because he's the first. He has nothing he can slot into. He's got to get everything worked out. And in the end, not everything was properly arranged in advance. And Andrews had to work many things out after he got to Switzerland by writing back to church leaders in America. But that was to come. The key thing is that he does work out a lot of practical details. And it's in, in September 1874, Andrews, accompanied by his two children and accompanied by a Swiss believer called Adamar Vuyumier, who's um, Alba's brother, uh, the four of them sailed from Boston. So eventually, September 1874, the mission, the first missionary and his family sails from Boston, the first missionary dispatched by the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We had taken the plunge, we'd broken the logjam, whatever metaphor you want to use, um, we'd taken a huge and consequential step and the church would never be the same again. And we will explore what all of this means in future podcasts. Absolutely. Thank you for watching or listening to Mission 150. If you like what you're hearing, please share this with your friends and follow future episodes. We'll see you next week.